0: Welcome to another edition of the IFF Podcast. Uh, Mark is back here. Uh, I've got my co-pilot with me, Doug. How are you doing today, Doug?
1: Doing wonderfully. Socially distanced makes this podcast a little bit different, but let's see how it goes.
0: Good. And before we start, I want to give a shout out to uh, Neil Sonnenberg on the back end. He's the one that makes uh, us sound really good and brings the podcast to everybody. So the first couple episodes of our podcast, which is actually all of our episodes of the podcast, Doug, uh, have focused on COVID-19 and what firefighters need to do to be prepared and stay safe. I think it's time that we switch gears. Uh, we, we wanted to do a podcast that featured a lot of topics and get on uh, you know, so, a lot of issues. And I think it's time to flip the switch and get to some of those issues. And with this podcast episode being recorded uh, end of May, 1st of June, uh, a very timely topic is that of hurricane season. And our hurricane season runs uh, from June through November. and it affects a lot of our districts out there. It affects a lot of states along the Eastern coast, the Gulf coast. And we have thousands of members that are potentially in the path of hurricanes every year. And hurricanes are more than just watching them on TV every day and watching the weather reports to see how they go. There are actually experts behind the scenes that really do the work of of hurricane forecasting and weather forecasting in general. And one of those places is the National Hurricane Center. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. We're going to discuss the National Hurricane Center, um, what it does, where it's at, how it how it operates. And we have a very special guest with us today. But first, you know, just a little bit about the National Hurricane Center is is fascinating. A lot of people don't know that it's part of the NOAA, which I believe, and Andy you'll have to correct, is National Oceanic <laughs> Atmospheric Administration. I think. I actually did, I I think did that's right. homework. <laughs> I actually did homework for this show. You'll be proud of me. Um, it's located down in Florida International and down in Miami, and uh, they don't just sit there and wait for hurricanes. There's a lot more that they do. Uh, just in researching, they're broken down into multiple units. They have hurricane specialists and tropical analysis and forecast branches, uh, technology, storm surge units, aerial reconnaissance coordination, all these fancy stuffs. They have hurricane liaison teams that work with emergency managers. Uh, it's actually a an entire world uh, that's out there to forecast these storms and take the necessary measures to keep us safe. So with that in mind, I want to bring on a special guest today who's a lot smarter uh, in this topic than you and I will ever be. You um, mean
1: my Cincinnati, Ohio experience doesn't count for any of this? The hurricanes we had on the Ohio River aren't going to matter?
0: The great hurricane of 2000 never that you had yeah, up there? exactly. Yeah. yeah. I get it. So we're introducing a gentleman today who's joining us from the National Hurricane Center, he has, who brings vast experience to the world of meteorology, hurricane forecasting, and uh, prevention. Not so much preventing hurricanes, but preventing the dangers to you to minimize your dangers during a hurricane. Uh, I'd like to introduce Andy Lato from the National Hurricane Center. And Andy, how are you doing today?
2: Good. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here, Andy. We appreciate it.
0: So Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: All right, thanks. Uh, I was actually born in Florida, um, and I grew up in the west coast of Florida, and that's kind of where my passion for meteorology came from. Uh, there was Hurricane Elena back when I was six years old, and it was, uh, it was, I saw the awesome power of these storms, and I was like, wow, I can't believe you know a storm would be this big, last this long, and I also like the big thunderstorms we got every afternoon in the summertime. So that kind of got me interested in weather. Eventually, I went to Florida State. For a meteorology degree, got my master's degree there. And actually, my path to the Hurricane Center isn't uh, one that a lot of folks have taken. I actually worked for the National Weather Service. Uh, they have forecast offices across the country. I started off in Flagstaff, Arizona. And it's funny, somebody just mentioned Cincinnati. I I forecast at the Wilmington, Ohio office, actually, right before I went to the Hurricane Center. And I worked there for a few years. And actually, did yes, they got they got hit by Ike back in 2008. I remember that. And in fact, our, our house there in Ohio had a new roof because of Ike believe it or not.
1: I think, Uh, I think most of that area got new roofs because of Ike. It was like, oh my gosh, we finally had something noteworthy. Let's all get new roofs. Right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. That's what happened. So, so yeah. So then I ended up at the Hurricane Center back in 2014. I've been there ever since. I've been a hurricane forecaster for two years now. Um, And so that's my path to get to the Hurricane Center. And um, I got back to my home state. My wife's from Florida as well. So we're all back in our home state here. Um, So it's a good setup we've got going here.
0: That's good. Like you, Andy, I uh, Doug will tell you all about it. I, I'm a complete nerd when it comes to the weather. I love the weather. Uh, I love natural disaster stuff. Not really being part of them, but I just I just love that field. So, and it's really appreciate having you here today. So, Thanks. the National Hurricane Center, tell us about it. What does it really do? I mean, we hear we only hear about the National Hurricane Center when there's a storm coming, but what it it's a year-round operation. What do you do down there?
2: Okay, so like, uh, first off, like the public, I like to tell them, okay, so we're not the, we're not usually the ones that are doing like the newscasts or anything like that. We're doing all the behind-the-scenes work. We are uh, basically, you know, in a nutshell, the Hurricane Specialist Unit. We issue the forecast. You see the cone of uncertainty. You see the watches and warnings. We do that. We say where it's going to go, how strong it's going to be, and the media outlets all relay that information out to the world. And so you're talking about the different units. Uh, So that's one unit. Uh, In the off-season, the Hurricane Specialist Unit does things like what I'm doing now, doing outreach. Uh, We teach a course, several courses for the FEMA folks at the Hurricane Center uh, throughout the off-season. We teach others that come into the building about uh, weather forecasting. We also apply all this research that's going on, apply it to our operations and Install the software, you know, do upgrades and whatnot, all in preparation of the next season. And plus, we have to write a whole bunch of reports for every storm that happened, both in the East Pacific and Atlantic. So it's a lot of work. It's actually, at times, can be busier in the off season than during the season. That's just in the hurricane specialist unit. The other branches you're talking about, like the tropical analysis forecast branch, they operate 24 7, 365 days a year, uh, because they're doing forecasts for the marine folks, like the uh, cruise ships, uh, the Coast Guard. They're doing all these forecasts for the ones that are all out there over the oceans, um, and they, any time of year, can have gales, big cold fronts, severe weather out there. So they're trying to give a heads up for all those guys. The tech and science branch, they keep our systems up and running. I would not be able to sit here. I'm at home. I'm capable of issuing a forecast right now from home uh, with the setup we have, and we could never be there without these guys the storm surge unit, they are in-house. They're responsible for doing all the research and development to be able to issue storm surge watches and warnings. And so when you look at a forecast, we might say the uh, storm surge is capable of producing three to five foot higher tides than normal. They're doing all this research and they're running all these models and statistics to try to determine how a storm can cause the storm surge to be at high. And so when we issue storm surge watches and warnings, all, all this information is coming from them uh for that information uh you got you talked about the CARCA which is chief aerial reconnaissance coordination all hurricanes unit they're responsible to try to coordinate where the hurricane hunters are going to go and when they're going to go there so we talk to them we coordinate with them we say okay well there's going to be a threat here and they'll coordinate with all the uh, air force folks to send them out to fly into the hurricanes Um, and lastly the hurricane liaison team they uh, will be our liaison to the emergency managers. You know, the emergency managers are out there, FEMA's out there. They're trying to determine how to get everybody safe and, and mobilize the FEMA folks uh, for before and after the storms. And so uh, they listen to our forecast and they try to determine and make all these decisions ahead of time and during the event.
1: A couple of times there, Andy, you mentioned models. And mm-hmm. just from watching it on the news, you see you know 15 different models that they predict when the storm's mm-hmm. pretty far out. How are all of those models done by your the National Hurricane Center, or do you guys incorporate other places in that modeling as well?
2: So not all of them are at the Hurricane Center. There's a couple that are run in house. There's a few that are run up in DC in College Park, actually. But there's several others, uh, such as there's a Canadian forecast model, there's a European forecast model, there's a UK forecast model, and so we're looking at all this other information. And pulling that in, and when you see like a spaghetti plot, you're pretty much looking at all those models on one sheet. And so, kind of one of our challenges is to try to determine which one's the best, and it changes every storm, unfortunately. So it's not easy to pick which one's the best unless you really dig into the details.
0: Stay, staying on the models, what goes into to really being able to develop one and get in that and get in that spaghetti that you talked about?
2: Well, as far as the technical side of the models, there's all these atmospheric equations they have to plug into it. And basically what we're trying to do over time, all the researchers, is they're trying to make these models more sophisticated. They're trying to get them to a, what do you call it, a finer resolution. So an older computer model might have a 25-kilometer resolution. Well, you can't pick up a lot of details on that. You can pick up the large-scale features. As computers get better and faster, they can kind of uh pick apart the atmosphere in smaller pieces to try to let them try to evolve and simulate it out in time and so you what you get is these higher resolution models that help forecast intensity a lot better and are helping to forecast the track a lot better
1: so we really are getting better at predicting just the, the severity and where these storms are going over time right like back in the day it was just you know a more of an educated guess. You guys are really using the science and the technology to be more, much more precise, which certainly helps us and our members in the long run, I think.
2: Exactly. And we still got a long way to go. I mean, you're we, we, taken by surprise by a lot of, especially with intensity. Intensity is really hard to forecast because there's stuff going on inside the hurricane that it's hard to see. We are not sitting there. Uh, We don't have a radar looking at a hurricane constantly. So there's things that processes that happen inside the storm and other subtle things that can make them intensify or weaken a lot faster than we anticipate. So those are some challenges that we still faced. And uh, that's why we have those researchers out there. When do you
1: guys start plotting out all of those models and really jump into? I know we talked earlier. And there are three storms that have already kind of developed before the season officially starts. When do you guys get involved with all of the plotting and planning on those? Is it as soon as it becomes a tropical
2: depression? Um, is it once it gets a name? How does that work? So we have a couple of great examples of what's going on right now. Actually, for that, so we have a disturbance in the central Atlantic Ocean. Once the system has a um, enough of structure to be able to kind of track some sort of low pressure area, we can start running our in-house models on that system. There are other forecast models, such as the GFS, the global forecast model, and I said the Euro- European model, UK Met. Those, those models all can track these things way before they even form. Uh, so you can kind of get an idea where they, where they at least where the models think they might, might go or how strong it is before you might not even see thunderstorms on a satellite picture. Uh, so they're capable of, of anticipating things or at least trying to a couple weeks in advance. Of course, there's a lot of error in those at that point. We really start honing in when I said, like, once we have a trackable low. And so right now, for example, the Atlantic, we started running our in-house models as the last night. Uh, so we're tracking it uh, basically as the last night, seeing where it's going to go. And, and same for the Eastern Pacific. There's this disturbance down there near Central America. Uh, we've been looking at the global computer models for several days now. And that's how we were able to tell you put it, tropical weather outlook out there. And that's an important thing to look at on the, the Hurricane Center webpage. We can try to give you a heads up, oh, in the next several days, there might be this percent chance of something forming. And then, yeah, we'll create the – we'll look at the spaghetti plots basically once it has a trackable low with it. And that could be anywhere from five days before it forms, or it could be as quick as something like Bertha, where it's only you know the day of that we're actually starting to track a trackable low.
0: And that brings us to to an important topic I want to talk about is – you, know, you supply all the information for everybody to, to to and it's the media's job to get the forecast out there and that on, based on the information that you're providing uh, what's the process so you have a wave come off the African coast it starts to develop a- at what point does what are the metrics that you're using that sound the alarm that say okay this is going to dissipate or no this is not going to dissipate we have the cap we have the potential for development. And so what what goes through the process 96 hours out, 72 hours, 48, 36, 24 hours out.
2: Well, I'll start off briefly about something that hasn't actually formed yet. So for example, what I did this morning for the Central Atlantic system was I looked at the computer models and they try to simulate you know what kind of thunderstorm activity might develop around it and how tight the, the low will get, how strong the low will get. and and so as we see a trend over every model run, which is usually every six hours, uh, we see a trend of things getting stronger. It's like, okay, well, we got to start increasing the probabilities at least for this thing to actually develop. Um, once it actually develops, and we do have, let's say, a tropical depression, our process basically it goes from, let's say, for example, the morning forecast package will go from basically from 8 a.m. until 11 a.m. Where 11 a.m. is when we send the forecast out. 8 a.m. I'll go in. I'll say this is where the storm currently is. This is how strong it is now. So it's kind of an analysis, do the the now, here and now, here's what's going on with it. And then I will send that information out to all the computer models and they will take all that information in and they'll start cranking and start making their forecasts with that information I gave them. And so some of that information's available very quickly. Sometimes you have to wait till the next model cycle, but the guy before you already sent the information out. So you have this little delayed model cycle for you. So you have all these plots that are coming in for track and intensity once you get a storm up and running and so from let's say from about uh, 8 30 to 9 30 or so you look at all that information and you start deciding what the storm's going to do you start making your track intensity forecast you also make a wind radii forecast how big the storm's going to be uh, once you get all that done all that's in the system you're happy with it you got then you have to go through the process of writing all the text products so i don't know if you've read like we have tropical cyclone discussions we have a public uh, forecast discussion. All that information we have to put in there, some of it's automatic, but a lot of it uh, we're trying to put on paper what our thoughts are. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sure all of that looks good. And that's that's just for when a storm's offshore. Uh, if there's watches and warnings, it has a whole new layer. We have to coordinate with the weather forecast offices. We might have to coordinate with the reconnaissance unit. The news media might be calling in the middle of all of this Uh, And so it can get very busy when there's something approaching land. Uh, Somebody has to be there to uh, make sure the the process is going on on the computer to actually issue the right watches and warnings. So you get a lot of moving parts once you get a storm threatening land.
1: How often do you find yourselves updating those watches and warnings once it gets to, to land or close to land? Is that a daily thing? Is that an hourly thing?
2: So typically, let's say you have a, a run-of-the-mill storm that's just uh, making a beeline for a coastline. Um, there's not a lot of uh, change in the forecast or whatever. You, what you'll do is you'll issue, when you see the tropical storm, wind radii 48 hours from the coast, you'll issue the watches based on where, where you think the hurricane-force winds will be, There'll be the hurricane watch, tropical storm-force winds will be the tropical storm watch. And then once it's 36 hours out, you you put up the warnings. You, you might see, if the track varies, you might see it changes, but um, if there's not a lot of change, a lot of times you'll see from 36 hours out all the way to landfall, nothing really changes. And so it's just kind of get the word out that far out so everyone can start their planning and, and do what they've got to do without any surprises. So we try to, try to prevent any surprises happening after that time frame. So, so the watches
1: and warnings are set ahead of time. What, what about the, the actual predictive paths? How, I mean, like I know you get the Weather Channel. that's down there in the middle of it, and everybody likes to send their correspondence from a media perspective mm-hmm. down there. How often are you giving them updates if they're not calling? Is that a? It sounds like it might be a daily thing, but do you do it more often as the storm progresses in?
2: Our frequency of forecasts when the storm there's no watches and warnings out is every six hours. We'll issue an entire new forecast every six hours. It's at uh, 11 a.m., 5 p.m., 11 p.m., 5 a.m. That's all uh, Eastern Time. Uh, so when once there's watches or warnings out, and the storm's still a little farther away, we do it every we do a intermediate advisory every three hours in between those times, to kind of update the position. And there could be watch warning issuances at those times too, uh, but we mainly update the position, intensity, and whatnot. Uh, we might not necessarily adjust the track or intensity forecast. That's usually done at the six-hour timeframes. And then when it's really close to the coast, we actually drill it down to an hour. Uh, especially if it's a strong system uh, we can track it on radar we get position intensity updates hourly at that point
1: so you guys are you guys you guys are really starting to you really gets busy and you're humping everything at that time once it's close you're putting those out once an hour right It sounds super intense yeah
2: a good example is Dorian. Uh, so Dorian when it was five days from the Bahamas uh, we were just issuing once every six hours once it got uh, once the watches and warnings went up, yeah, we did everything every three hours. And then once it got on radar, yep, we were setting out tropical cyclone updates hourly.
0: At what point does do you launch the plane, the hurricane hunters?
2: So some of the criteria, uh, for example, um, I've been checking with them daily right now. They want to know, for example, the Eastern Pacific system, if there was going to be a hurricane threat to Central America or Mexico in the next week they would start planning for flights. Another example is Arthur. So when Arthur was, uh, well, its uh, predecessor to Sturms was down there by the keys, uh, we kept checking with the unit saying, okay, what, are there any chances of watches and warnings going up? Uh, is there a chance of a land threat? And that's one of the keys, is there, is there a land threat? And so um, if we don't think there's going to be any land threat and it's going to kind of stay out to sea, they typically they won't fly it. Uh, that's not always the case. For example, Lorenzo last year was a Cat 5 out in the East Atlantic, and they were flying it. They were doing some research missions with that. But typically we when we coordinate, we're worried about yeah, landfalling threats from a stronger system.
0: Nice. We appreciate you being here. We're here with Andy Lato from the National Hurricane Center, and we're discussing the role the National Hurricane Center plays in forecasting weather and keeping the public safe. So as we as we move into the 2020 hurricane season, what are some of the newest gadgets that you're using uh, to predict storm path, storm, uh, you know storm intensity? You know, what's new on the horizon? Uh, and what are you what are you foreseeing for the season?
2: So for the upcoming hurricane season, uh, we always look forward to having uh, improving computer model forecasts. There's always some upgrades going on with one or no, or more of the computer models, so we're hoping those will help hone in on the better intensity forecast and track forecasting for us. Also, Uh, we're looking at uh, what's new for this year. We have a 60-hour forecast point. So that helps a lot of folks with the planning purposes because before this year we had 48 hours and then jumps to 72. And 60 hours is kind of an important uh, decision-making point for a lot of people. So that's going to be available in the cone forecast and um, all the other forecast products we have out there. As far as the 2020 season itself, uh, what we're looking at for the possibility, we came out with our forecast last week. It's going to be a 60% chance of an above-normal season. You might ask, well, how do we kind of figure this all out? Well, there's a team of NOAA scientists that look at all these ingredients that usually go into making a busy hurricane season for the Atlantic. One is, uh, you probably heard the term El Nino, La Nina. Well, El Nino is not there. It's partial, maybe partial La Nina that typically favors a busier season. The warmer waters in the Atlantic this year, and there's other larger-scale, longer-term phenomena that can kind of indicate Oh, it's a long-term busier time frame, anyway. So, do you recall uh, some of those seasons where, um, a few years back, where it seemed like everything that formed formed like north of like the Cuba formed in like the Central Atlantic and then moved north. That's a year where the, you don't get those classic long-track big storms off Africa. And then, then you have another year like the Irma, Maria years where you sit there or watching a storm for a week or two before it hits. This year looks like you might have more of those kind of storms because that's kind of the hot spot we're highlighting. When you have these uh, borderline La Nina events, things can get cranking down in those areas more.
1: So anyway, you said more of those type of storms. Are we talking about the Irma type
2: or the Central
1: Atlantic type?
2: Or more of the longer track, stronger Irma types. but. Okay. Uh, again, that's you might have that area, a lot of storms form in that area, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to hit anybody. Uh, a good example is the 2010 season. It was really busy down in that region, and not a single hurricane hit the United States. And another very quiet year, seven storms, and it was in 1992, but and that was when Hurricane Andrew hit. So it's all perspective as matter like it could be really busy for us at the hurricane center really bad for the marine interests, you know, for the boaters and everything, but it might be a case where something doesn't hit land or it doesn't hit the United States, but maybe devastates an area down south. So it all it's all about timing and and everything as far as whether or not there'll be a certain storm hitting a certain place.
0: And and does the the National Hurricane Center have a role? Do they play a role after the storm?
2: Well, as far as the, uh, after the storm, the, the main role we have is kind of following up with adjusting what the track and intensity really was. There's a lot of information coming in, especially as uh, there's a big storm moving through. You see a lot of times, for example, Michael, we adjusted it to a category five after the fact. Because once we get this data, we're actually able to, to interrogate it, you know, really dig into it. We're able to figure out how strong these storms really were. And so one of our biggest responsibilities after the fact is to come up with these uh, post-storm reports which has all the details in it as far as how strong it was, number of fatalities, some of the estimates for damage, all the observations that were taken during the storm, whether it be from people over the land or the aircraft. We pull all this information and make these very detailed reports. So that's one of our biggest tasks we have
0: uh, after the fact. Cool. I know, I know the post-report storm from Michael on how quick that thing formed and, and the work that goes into that report was was amazing. you sit there and you can't even comprehend all of it. If you're not, if you're not in the field of meteorology, but it's something that's, uh, it's a good read. If you're a firefighter out there and you want to educate yourself a little bit more, uh, the after the after storm report is really something to take a look and read. So moving forward, uh, I was a firefighter down in Florida for almost 20 years, but I know June 1st, it's time to start preparing for hurricanes and any other tropical events that are out there as a firefighter. Uh, I'm getting in my mind of all the different things that I need to do. How can I utilize the information provided by the National Hurricane Center to implement that into my pre-planning for storms and hurricanes?
2: So if we're talking about like a pre-hurricane, so the storm doesn't exist yet, there's resources out there. And I think there's a link to uh, at the top of our headlines right now on the Hurricane Center webpage, but you know, I can double check that for you. So there's resources where you can look and say, okay, the first thing you want to understand to figure out is do I live in an evacuation area or or stuff is the firehouse in an evacuation area. And you can find that out through some of the resources we have or through your local emergency officials. Uh, because if you live live in like a flood prone area for storm surge or for heavy rainfall, you need to know that stuff well ahead of time because there's uh for example, there's no point in stocking up all these supplies if you if you're not going to be there. You're going to go somewhere else or or For example, I stock up on gasoline because I'm not in an evacuation zone for my generator, so I I get all that stuff well ahead of time. So, yeah, figure out where you are as far as what hazards are going to be affecting you the most should a hurricane hit. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean when a hurricane's hitting, that's going to be the main hazard. So, for example, one hurricane might be a very prolific storm surge producer because it's very large, uh, or... If it has 150 mile an hour winds, it's very compact, the winds might be the worst part of it. So if you go to the Hurricane Center webpage, what happens when there's a storm actually approaching, we highlight the the impacts. So we have something called the key messages, and that's on our homepage as well uh, under the advisory information. And so we'll try to hone in on like, is it a heavy rainfall threat? Is this a mainly a wind threat? Is it going to be a lot of tornadoes possible uh, or a storm surge? We're, what's the risk with a storm? And so that kind of lets you decide um, what your risk factors are. Um, there's a lot of other great products on there. that we've added in the last uh, recent years is like a, a time of arrival tools you can look at, like a most likely time arrival graphic or earliest reasonable. It, kinda, it can kind of hone in on your um, threshold of risk tolerance. So if you really want to get out of there way before the storm gets there, uh, look at the earliest reasonable time of arrival. So it'll kind of give you an idea like if the storm is really going fast, this is how fast the winds are going to get there most likely is probably well like it's like it sounds most likely time the storm, uh, tropical storm force winds you're going to set in so if you want to put your shutters up you might want to do it before that most likely time occurs
1: before the wind takes them out of your hand as you're trying to put them on your windows exactly
2: yeah <laughs> also i like and I, I like to say to people too is like as far as like if you, let's say you're not in an evacuation zone you're, you would like to get your supplies together uh now's the time to do it uh, don't wait for a storm to be out there because you might not find any of the stuff you want or need. I already, I already got my water. I already have my gas. Uh, so, I, you know, get the stuff now while you, while you can. And so it's just sitting there in your garage or wherever, just, just stowed away. That's fine. It's going to last you a few months anyway. So might as well have it now instead of waiting until July to get it.
0: So Andy, we're going to wrap up this show. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to, to give our audience on the National Hurricane Center, the hurricane season, uh, weather in general? Sure.
2: Uh, always, I say to always be vigilant. Uh, always keep an eye out. I say our tropical weather outlook is something very good to monitor, especially this time of year when you are not have a lot of active cyclones out there. Um, it kind of just gives you this head up, heads up. You can look at it once a day if you want, a couple times a day. Uh, just give you an idea where the hot spots might be in the next week or so. And just keep a monitor on those kind of things because uh, it can give you a very good heads up. Um, even though there might be some surprise storms, Typically, we're we're decent at giving people a heads up in that regard. The other things is again, make sure you know if you're in evacuation zone. Uh, that's vital. You know that prevents most of the uh, direct fatalities can be prevented if uh, folks are out of harm's way. Uh, if they if they have to be out of harm's way, don't you don't have to necessarily leave the state if you want to evacuate. You know, I, I mean, live in I live in South Florida. I don't feel like I have to drive to Georgia if I don't want to. You know, if there's somebody you know that lives a few miles inland that's willing to take you in, that, that saves you a lot of trouble, headache, getting on the roads. So there's a lot of different options out there um, to keep yourself safe and just uh, make that list and just try to keep everything in mind. Kind of kind of walk yourself through a scenario, if you will, um, of what would happen if, let's say, a Category 3 or 4 storm was approaching you. What would you do? And just kind of have all that list in place of what you would do in that game plan now and that way, when it, something does approach, you're like, okay, well, I already have most of the stuff figured out already. So you don't have to go into a panic mode about it.
1: Thank, thanks, Andy. This has been super helpful. Um, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I, I wasn't sure what to think when Mark pitched the idea of a hurricane podcast. I was like, well, okay, let's give it a shot. But I think this is really good and, and the information for our members is
0: tremendous to kind of help them plan ahead. So we appreciate it.
2: Good. I hope it can help out a lot.
0: Yeah, I want to say I want to say thank you too. I think it's it's good for the listeners to know that the National Hurricane Center does play a role in public safety for these events. And, you know, everybody could be tuned into their resources and make things a lot easier as the storms approach. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you for coming on today. And I wanna also thank you. For the work that you're doing at the National Hurricane Center to keep everybody safe. So uh, on that note, we'll close it out. And thank you for joining us today, Andy. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everything you all do.
1: So Mark, another successful podcast in the books. I think this one was really interesting. Some stuff that maybe firefighters and our members don't think about. But for those out there that like our podcast, please remember to share it with your friends and subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next one, stay safe.